TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Pete Souza about his years as the Obama White House official photographer. I acknowledge I'm not the greatest photographer in the world, but I think I was absolutely the best photographer for this particular situation. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that helped make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. 
Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Pete Souza has taken photographs for National Geographic, Life magazine, and other dream outlets for any journalist. He's covered wars, and he shot covers for magazines, including Newsweek and Fortune. During the Obama years, he was the chief official White House photographer, and his book, Obama, An Intimate Portrait, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. In 2017, Pete Souza started posting images of the Obama presidency on Instagram, with captions that indirectly comment on the current occupant of the White House. He now has over 2 million Instagram followers, and he's just published a new book titled Shade, A Tale of Two Presidents. Pete Souza, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me on. Pete, is it true that President Obama not only badgered you into marrying your longtime girlfriend, he actually also helped you pick out the ring? Uh, This is a true story. (laughs) Give us a little bit more. Tell us more about that. Well, he got to know my wife a little bit. And um, there was a time we were on Air Force One on a long overseas trip. And we usually hung out in the conference room and occasionally played cards with him. And for whatever reason, he just started on me. Like, why haven't you gotten married? And um, he said, look, we'll hold the wedding in the Rose Garden. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to do that. He goes, what, that's not good enough for you? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, he actually is true. Did he officiate? He officiated, but the president of the United States was not allowed to legally marry someone in the District of Columbia. So we had the, the White House chaplain at the very end came and did the final few words. How wonderful. You were born in New Bedford and grew up in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Your mom was a nurse. Your dad was a boat mechanic. You have memories of playing sports every single day after school and have described yourself as a sports fanatic. At that time in your life, did you have any artistic inclinations at all? Not that I am aware of. And it is true, I will point out that I was a sports fanatic, but I was not a good sports fanatic in terms of my abilities playing sports. I understand that when you weren't good enough to play, or I guess when you didn't make the teams, uh, you maintained a connection to the teams in some capacity. Can you talk about what that was? Well, for the basketball team, the varsity basketball team, I was the statistician. So I'd keep track of points and rebounds. And and then there were a couple of players on the team that I thought I was better than. And so oftentimes after practice, I would play them one-on-one and beat them, <laughs> which sort of made me feel good. But that was about it. After high school, you went to Boston University where you studied public communications. At that point, I think you had aspirations to be a sports writer. Is that correct? 
yeah, because I thought because I like sports so much, and I thought that would be a cool thing to do. I, I read the, the Boston Globe every day. The New Bedford Standard Times had a pretty good sports section. Um, but then in my junior year, I took a photography class, photojournalism one, I think it was called. And then the the bug the bug hit me right away. I think the first time that I was making a print in a dark room, you know, under those red safe lights. And you've got your tray of developer, Dectal developer. And as the image started to magically appear on the paper in that tray, uh, I was sort of hooked right then and there. Was that when you decided, I want to be a professional photographer? Sort of like sports, I wasn't any good when I started out at photography. But I knew that I wanted to continue doing that right away. You graduated cum laude in 1976 and subsequently sought photography jobs at local newspapers. What made you decide to go into newspaper journalism versus focusing on fine art photography? I was in the journalism school, and the way I was being taught photography was through journalism. Um, I had an internship my senior year at the AP, uh, the Associated Press in Boston, and covered news and sports events. So that was sort of like what I knew. If I had gone to this school or the New England School of Photography or something with more of an artistic curriculum, you know, maybe I would have ended up doing landscape photography. Who knows? I just liked photography, and I think journalism became the specific type of photography that I did just because of the circumstance that I was in. I understand that Though you were applying to jobs at local newspapers, uh, you had a pretty hard time finding one at that time, and you got rejected quite a bit. Do you do you have a sense of why at that time you were getting rejected so much? Because my portfolio sucked. That's why. <laughs> um, that simple, it, really? Was it that bad? I mean, it wasn't that bad, but it wasn't that proficient either. And I, I, I remember I was stringing... Well, I went to work for my uncle's business as a shipper, you know, packaging stuff up to ship out for like a year. But I was at the same time, I was doing occasional freelance assignments for the local newspaper in New Bedford and was hoping that they would hire me full time, which they didn't. Yeah. So it took it took me a while to get to the point where I was any good. You then decided to go to Kansas State University to get a master's degree in journalism and mass communications. And it was the first time you'd ever gone west of New York. And you said your family thought you were crazy. What made you decide to choose KSU? Uh, Well, you know, I started looking at, there's a magazine called Editor and Publisher. I don't know if it still exists. And then the back of the magazine, they had these classified ads for jobs and teaching jobs and professional jobs. And I would look at that every can't remember if it was a weekly or a monthly. And they had an advertisement in there for a teaching assistant uh, in basic photography. And I thought, well, maybe this was a way that I could teach the basic skills of photography um, while I got a graduate degree. And I talked to the host professor on the phone, and he basically sold me on the idea of doing this. And so... He kind of hired me on the phone, and I said, okay, I'll do it. One of your first big jobs was at the Chicago Sun-Times. What did you imagine that you were working toward at that time of your life? What were your goals? 
Well, before that, I had worked for two small daily newspapers in Kansas, and then I went right to the Sun-Times. I went from a 6,000 circulation daily newspaper where I was the only photographer to a 600,000 circulation newspaper where I was one of 25 photographers. So it was, it was great to have a seasoned staff that I learned so much from, John White, Richard Dirk, uh, people that I had admired for a long time as photojournalists. And I was in a, in a city where there was a lot of news, which I had not really experienced at, you know, small-town Kansas newspapers. Uh, and there was Major League Sports, and so I was having a ball. And I had no intention of going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, things were going really well. I was getting what I thought were good assignments. I was enjoying what I was doing. I loved Chicago. Uh, and I thought that was going to be a home for quite a while. But the White House called. But, yeah, so when I was in Kansas, I was trying to move up to the Kansas City Star as a photographer. And there was a photo editor at the Star was a woman named Carol Greenewald. And I interviewed for a job with her. She didn't hire me, but she sort of kept track of my career. And then she ended up becoming the White House photo editor under Michael Evans, who was Reagan's chief official photographer. And then in the middle of Reagan's first term, they had an opening for a, a White House photographer to work underneath Michael. And Carol called me one day out of the blue and said, you know, we want you to apply for this job. And it was one of those things where, you know, a phone call that had a lot to do with changing the rest of my life. So I ended up taking that job and uh, worked at the White House until the end of Reagan's term. Uh, my last day was January 20th, 1989. And so that was a, that was a great experience to, to the White House, to being an inside photographer, to understanding how to act and behave around, you know, national politicians and so on and so forth. You've said that your personal politics didn't exactly mesh with President Reagan's. Uh, did that worry you when you first joined the White House team? Well, when Carol first called me, I told her I wasn't interested because I thought things were going so well, and I didn't really think that highly of, of Reagan at the time. But, you know, I thought we all hope that our pictures live in history, and I thought, you know, what better way to provide images for history and then be inside at the White House. And what difference does it make whether the president was a Democrat or a Republican? And so I sort of put those thoughts aside and went to work there. And, and I actually, you know, I admired President Reagan. He was a decent human being. He respected other people from all walks of life. And, you know, to me, the policy part of it was not that significant in terms of what I was doing, which was photographing uh, for the historic archive. Did you have to develop a certain objectivity, or was that something that didn't really come up in the kind of work you were doing? I mean, I think, you know, I approached it as a photojournalist would, which is you're trying to photograph and make authentic pictures that are true to what has taken place. And 
I don't know how, like, I guess if you, because you didn't like his policies, you maybe get a picture of him picking his nose. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, I never understood what that means, objective or non-objective. I mean, you're, you're, you're documenting what's, what's happening, uh, and policies really don't affect the way you make a picture, I don't think. After your tenure with Reagan, you became one of the first photographers to cover the war in Afghanistan, which you did for the Chicago Tribune. And while there, you traversed the 15,000-foot Hindu Kush mountain pass on horseback in three feet of snow. You also saw the dark realities of war, death, destruction, devastation. How did that impact you? Well, I mean, the thing that was interesting about Afghanistan was that it was the first war, really, where pictures, because of the advance of digital technology, you could transmit them back to the U.S. hours later after you made them with your satellite phone. And and so there was a immediate reaction from the readership of the Chicago Tribune. You know, we had—I uh, I went with a correspondent named Paul Salopek— uh, you know, Paul and I had a couple close calls with, uh, you know, rocket-propelled grenades and sniper bullets and things like that. And by the way, we were there before there were any U.S. troops on the ground. Uh, the U.S. had started their air campaign already, and and we were usually lo- uh, hooked up with the local Northern Alliance, the soldiers that were fighting against the Taliban. And, you know, re- a couple times we were right there on the front line with them. And I'm— You know, I never considered myself a war photographer. I sort of ended up right on the front line almost by mistake. And I realized that I was not that good at it because it takes a certain kind of person to be able to keep their shit together while really bad things are happening around you. And I I realized that that probably was not for me. (laughs) I can't imagine how anybody could keep their shit together in that kind of condition. Well, there are people that can. Yeah. In 2004, you were shooting Washington, D.C. for the Chicago Tribune, and you were asked to cover the then-Senator Barack Obama's first year in the Senate. What did you think about that assignment? Had you had you ever heard of the senator at that point, or did you have a, an, a big impression of him? You know, he had made this big speech in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention. And at the time, I was with the nominee, John Kerry, traveling with him for the Tribune. And the day that Barack Obama made that speech, Kerry was not yet at the convention. I think we were in Nantucket, as a matter of fact. Uh, So I didn't see the speech, but I heard about it after. And then when he was elected to the Senate and, and Jeff Zeleny reporter uh, said, hey, we should do this look at his first year in the Senate. Um, I, I, I sort of read up on him a little more. And the New Yorker had published a, a long profile about him, which I read. Uh, but I didn't really, I hadn't seen him like on video and to see what he looked like or how he interacted with people uh, until the day I met him, uh, which was in early January. When he of, was sworn in. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was a few hours before he was, went, I met him at his hotel, uh, before he had gone up to the Capitol, which was, you know, the first time that I had met him. What was your first impression of him? You know, the first day 
of your Senate career is a ceremonial day. Um, you're sworn in, you get your office, you have some receptions, you meet with this person, with that person, very ceremonial. His family, who stayed in Chicago, came to D.C. that day, both Sasha and Malia and Michelle. And a couple things struck me. One, he was very at ease, uh, even though I was taking pictures, you know, throughout the day. I've got this picture of him in his office with Sasha and Malia and He's biting into a big sandwich, and he's got this big wad of food in his mouth, and Sasha Malia just doing their thing, and um, it's as if I'm not even there. I mean, it's such an intimate picture, and I had only known him for like three hours. And, you know, as a, as a photojournalist, you always hope to have a subject uh, like that, you know, one who isn't like, you know, subtly startled by the presence of a camera and he sort of just went about his business as I went about my business, which was, you know, I thought unusual in a, a new national politician. Then over the, the next few weeks to see the way he interacted with people, not only the way he spoke when he was giving a speech and, and seeing how people reacted to the spoken word, but then seeing how he would interact with people directly and um, was very respectful to every person he met. You could see the excitement in the faces of some of the young people, especially the young African-American kids. All of that was very noticeable just in the matter of the first few weeks I spent with him. Did you have any idea back then of what he was capable of and how far he might ascend in politics? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he came in with a lot of hype. And then, you know, you never know. As I, I, people ask me, who's going to be, you know, a Democratic nominee in 2020? And I say, you never know who is going to do well under the glare of the national spotlight. But, but certainly I could see that he would at least someday run for a bigger position than senator. I didn't know if that would be governor or, or president. And I, and I sort of tried to keep that in the back of my mind, you know, having been in the White House with Reagan and noting what the presidential bubble is like. What I, do you mean by a presidential bubble? Well, I mean, there's so, there's this apparatus around you, Secret Service, everything is kind of stage managed in terms of for security reasons. You can't just like leave the White House and go for a walk and go to Starbucks or, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or whatever. Um, you can't do that when you're president. You can do that when you're a senator, especially you're a freshman senator. So I was trying to make pictures in my mind that I thought if he ever became president, these would be cooler pictures in 20 years. They would be more, they would be timeless. But as you look back on them, you'd see, I mean, the, some of my favorite pictures of John Kennedy are ones when he was running for president and nobody really knew that much about him and there's like nobody else around. He's the only one out on the the airport tarmac, things like that. Yeah, you see the person. Uh, yeah, so I was trying to like keep that in the back of my mind. I've got this series of pictures of uh, President Obama in Russia. We went to Russia with him and, and Senator Luger from Indiana on a congressional delegation. And I've got these pictures of him in Red Square, President Obama, where 
he's walking through the Red Square and nobody is looking at him. Nobody knows who he is. And I knew that those pictures, when you look at those now, they're really kind of cool to look at because here's this guy that became this president, national figure. Everybody knows who he is now. And at the time, he's running around Moscow and not not a soul recognizes him. When Obama did become president, his spokesman, Robert Gibbs, asked you to be President Obama's official photographer. And you accepted on the condition that you would have complete access. Had that not been the case prior in the White House when photographers were covering the president? So first, President Obama asked me through Robert Gibbs okay. to become his photographer. Gibbs, we all know him as White House press secretary, but in reality, he was his closest aide. Um, he was as much an advisor as he was a spokesman. And I did say that to him about the access. And I remember Robert's reply was, the president-elect gets it. And, you know, I think the the amount of access that you get when you're the chief official White House photographer is totally dependent on the relationship that you have with the president. Ultimately, the president decides how much access you get. It was very beneficial to me to have had experience previously in the White House, as well as having had for four years a professional relationship with Barack Obama. So he, like, he knew me. I was more or less from his generation And he had a lot of young people around him. So I think he liked having somebody from his generation around him. Um, And he saw how I worked. I always tell people, I acknowledge I'm not the greatest photographer in the world, but I think I was absolutely the, the best photographer for this particular situation because of all those, all those things. You shot with a Canon 5D Mark II and Mark III at the White House and estimated in 2009 that you shot around 1,000 to 1,500 photographs in an average day. Recent totals for both of Obama's terms come in at around 2 million images. And I read that you sought to minimize your footprint at the White House, and President Obama himself has described you as having a remarkable talent for making yourself invisible. How did you go about doing that? 1,500 pictures a day hardly seems like you could be invisible doing it. No, but and by, by a small footprint, which, uh, I mean, at the time, the Canon 5D was what I thought was the quietest professional digital camera that existed. So that's why I chose to use that camera. And I didn't use a flash, and I would uh, not use a motor drive rapid, you know, one picture after another. 1,500 pictures in a 12- or 13-hour day is really not that many, I don't think. I just had this ability to go about my job and not you know, disturb what was taking place in front of me, knowing when to give him some space. And these are all things that you can't, you know, write down as bullet points and say, here's how you do it. It's a lot of it is intuition. I think it would, it would, (laughs) physically, it would have been better if I had been 20 years younger. But I think I also had the advantage being older in that. I sort of felt that um, I belong there. I wasn't going to have anybody tell me that I didn't belong there. And I I knew how to approach things 
where I wouldn't get kicked out of the room. One of your most well-known shots was President Obama and his team, including Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, watching the bin Laden raid. One thing you said about that image that's really stayed with me is this. The most powerful people in the room were in that room, and they were essentially helpless, resigned to just watch something play out. Pete, what was it like to be there in that room when it was happening? Yeah, no, it was very tense. We were in there for about 40 minutes, 42 minutes, I think it was. And yeah, I mean, this was a decision to launch this raid that was arguably the biggest decision of his presidency because things could have gone really bad. I mean, if we go back to history when Carter sent in helicopters to Iran to try to rescue our hostages and the helicopters crashed, some of our guys were killed. This was a risky mission, and this was a decision that could have ended his presidency if it not had ended well. So, you know, I was aware of, of all that uh, in the back of my mind as this day progressed. You just didn't know how it was going to end up. Well, he ultimately had made this decision, and his staff supported him. Um, but then once the mission itself was playing out, they had no role in it. It was out of their hands. And yet they were being able to monitor this raid as it happened. So I think that's what accounts for all the tension, you know, that you see in their faces. All told, you've said that the photos that stand out to you the most are the highly personal moments, such as when Washington, D.C. was buried in a snowstorm and President Obama went outside and played with his daughters. You were the only other person there. That's when you saw him as a human versus a president. Over the eight years you shot him in the White House, how did you see President Obama change over the course of his tenure? Uh, His hair got a little grayer. That's true. (laughs) But, you know, the core character of the guy didn't change. I mean, from from that first day that I met him in January 2005 until... You know, we're flying away on a helicopter last January. The The character of him, didn't, I didn't think, changed at all. He grew as a, as a, a person. I mean, it, it, there, there's some things you can't prepare for as president. For instance, the, the first tragedy that probably happened— during his presidency were the shootings at Fort Hood. And he had to go there and console all these families. You can't teach somebody how to do that. And I could see the uneasiness in him, not knowing what people expected from him, when really all they wanted was a hug or to be able to show him pictures of their loved one that had been killed. And... I saw him have to do that a lot, uh, too many times in his presidency, but he, you know, he sort of got to the point where he understood why he needed to do it, and I think became more comfortable in doing it, which is kind of a sad thing to say, really, that, you know, that he had to do that so many times that he became comfortable. But I can't imagine anyone uh, having to do that time and time again, and how much that takes out of you, you know, emotionally, 
to meet these families in those circumstances. After your tenure at the White House, you released the book Obama, An Intimate Portrait, which soared to number one on the New York Times bestseller list and is one of the best-selling photography books of all time. Uh, You needed to be able to parse through the two million images you'd taken over the eight years of the Obama administration down to the 300 that were included in the book. How were you able to do that? Yeah, no, that was that was a big challenge because I wanted to and try to include most of the historical things that had happened during his presidency, but then also show some of the small moments that really show what he was like as a person. And then also show some of the aesthetic pictures that I had made of the presidency, you know, pictures of Air Force One, the helicopter, you know, scenes like that and try to just have a good uh, narrative throughout the book. It was not easy to do, and ultimately it just became a gut check on what I thought were the right set of pictures. Um, I'm sure that if I wait another 10 years to try to put together the same book, it would be slightly different because I would be thinking about things, thinking back on things, Maybe differently, things would have happened in the world that maybe affect what was important then. You don't realize it until 10 years later or something like that. Today you have 2 million followers on Instagram, and your posts are incredibly telling when our current president signed the executive order banning refugees from the country. You posted an image of President Obama smiling as he played with a refugee girl. When Melania Trump famously swatted away Donald's hand, you posted a photo of Michelle and Barack joining fingers. There could not be a more diametrically opposed juxtaposition. What made you decide to do this? I thought it was my civic duty. I had worked for a, a, a guy for eight years that I, I respected, who respected the rule of law, who tried to make decisions based on facts, who was respectful to other people. And the person that succeeded him was none of those things. And I didn't feel that he was respecting the President Trump was respecting the Oval Office, the office of the presidency. I didn't didn't think he understood what it meant to be an American. And I thought that you know, it became my civic duty in my little small way to point this out. You've said that when your account was first described as throwing shade, you had to look the term up, especially since it was in reference to curtains in the White House. What was that like when you first discovered what throwing shade meant? Well, the the post that you're referring to is a couple days after the inauguration and uh, I had seen a picture of the redecorated Oval Office. There were these gold curtains instead of two flags in the Oval Office. There were like, I don't know, 20 flags or something. And it looked like a Saudi palace, not not the Oval Office. And, you know, I was appalled. (laughs) So I posted a picture of President Obama by the Resolute desk with the red curtains in the background. And I think my caption was something like, kind of like the old curtains better. And I admit it was a double meaning, and I didn't know if people would pick up on that. 
they did. The very first post, someone said that I was shading Trump. And, you know, over the subsequent weeks, I would do my little snarky captions and responses to a presidential tweet or story. And I was getting all these calls from reporters wanting me, you know, wanting me to do an interview. And I turned them all down because I just said, look, it's my Instagram feed speaks for itself. I thought it was more powerful. Just let it stand. Uh, But people started doing stories anyway, despite the fact that I wasn't being quoted. And there were several headlines, you know, Sousa throws shade at Trump or trolling was another word. Um, And so I I sort of knew what trolling meant, but I didn't really know what throwing shade meant. So I I did look it up. You have a brand new book now based on that work, and it is called Shade. A Tale of Two Presidents, and it takes its name from that experience. The book places images of President Obama and elements of President Trump alongside tweets, news pieces, and quotes. And as you write in the intro, in this book, I take a turn to full transparency and let it all hang out. You can call it shade. I just call it the truth. You then go on to state that with this book, you are standing up and shouting out as you can't be subtle any longer. Pete, after years of making impartial political statements through your official photographs, was it daunting to be putting yourself out there in this way? It was only daunting in that I started this while I was putting together my other book. So I I, I felt that I had two separate lives going on, two separate work lives. One... I was trying to do the best documentary photography book on a president that had ever been done. So that was occupying most of my time. My side job was starting these shade comments on Instagram, and they were two completely different things. But now I sort of, now that I have a book out, I mean, I have to talk about it. And the book is actually... The big difference between the book and the Instagram feed itself is on the Instagram feed, I I sort of leave people guessing what I'm referring to sometimes. They have to pay attention to the news. I often get comments from people that they see my post and they have to Google what Trump did that offended me or that I'm responding to. Well, in the book, it's, (laughs) it's very direct in that The left page is a Trump tweet or a news headline or a series of news headlines. And the right page is my response I gave on Instagram or, you know, a similar one. There's some actually new material that wasn't on Instagram in the book. But I try to keep that sort of flow of here it is. Here's the, the Trump craziness on the right side. Here's my response. It's an interesting political, cultural, and somewhat satirical book. And in a lot of ways, it's not satire at all. It's just truth. Is it true that you blocked Kanye West from your Instagram feed? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I don't think he follows me on Instagram. I just did that as I I often, sometimes uh, I think people take what I say too seriously. And that was just sort of like tongue-in-cheek. I don't think Kanye follows me on Instagram. I don't think 
Kanye knows who the hell I am. Well, he should. I have one last question for you, Pete. It's about another Instagram star you have a connection to, (laughs) Charlotte the Tortoise. Tell us about Charlotte the Tortoise. You know, one thing that happens when you have kids and they get pets as children and they eventually grow up and leave the house, but they leave their pets with you. So Charlotte, who we've had for 20 20 or 21 years. Tortoises live a really long time. Was not uh, my pet. It was Patty's kid's pet. They grew up, they left the house, and, you know, Charlotte, you know, stayed with us. And uh, Charlotte was was named after Charlotte's Web. And I had always been taking pictures with my iPhone of Charlotte all these years. But then I started posting a few on my Instagram feed and people started going crazy. Uh, and so I think I thought it was time for Charlotte to get her own Instagram feed. And it's th- at Charlotte the Tortoise on Instagram. Yeah. Quite an entertaining feed as well. Yeah. Very different feed, but yeah. wonderful to follow. Pete, thank you so much for being on Designing Matters today. And thank you for documenting the world with such significance and beauty. Well, thanks for saying that. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You can see more of Pete's work at PeteSouza.com. Pete Souza's latest book is Shade, A Tale of Two Presidents, and an exhibit of his work is being shown at the Stephen Kasher Gallery in New York City. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie Dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.